person, right? Now, the Silicon Valley mindset is very, very unique. From day zero, they have a globalization, you know, roadmap in play, right? They make products for the world. Now, this mindset is very difficult to replicate if you do not have that framework already in place in the hub that we, you are operating in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I should say good morning if you're in Bangalore, India, and you're watching this. Thank you for tuning in to Social Convos. It's a brand new edition, and we're getting close to those 50 episodes, Diego. Yeah, the goal we set up at the beginning of the year is starting to shape up. We're seeing the end and the start of a new beginning, hopefully. Yeah, and I think we have a perfect guest to kind of kickstart into ideas and concepts that we're going to do next year. So uh, are you ready to introduce our guest for, uh, for today? More than ready. I've actually been looking forward to engaging more with people I met during the fellowship on that fellowship in the beginning of the year. And I'm so glad that Saswat reached out because, you know, sometimes you need to have a proactive approach and I've been kind of slacking and Saswat has always been a person who's been asking curious questions in the live sessions. So it's kind of encouraging for me personally to have that engagement. And Sasot also has his own podcast. He'll talk to us more about it as we go through the episode, but he's the host of the Sassetop podcast. And I always find it, found it funny how he named it because it sounds like his name, but SAS as in uh, software at the surface. He'll tell us the story behind that uh, a bit. But he's the host of the Sassadot podcast and he's actually interviewed quite a few interesting, noteworthy individuals, podcasters as well. One notably, most recent was, I think, Andrew Warner. And if you don't know Andrew Warner, he's huge in the podcast space uh, in Silicon Valley. I think over 10, 15 years of podcasting experience with, I think, 1500 episodes. So I'm really... I haven't finished the full episode yet, but I'm really excited to, you know, learn more about what episodes. He has learned from something like that and how he has implemented it because he also guides other, you know, thought leaders in how to channel that through a podcast. So I'm not going to tell any more, but without further ado, Saswat, welcome to Social Convos. Hey, Diego. Hey, John, look, it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be on your show, guys, and especially Diago, because we have already been through a common fellowship. So I absolutely adored some of the work that you have been doing. So thank you so much for inviting no, us. Thank you for being here. We always appreciate uh, when we have conversations <laughs> with people from all around the world. And for those who of you are just tuning in, Satwat is based in Bangalore, India, and it's like 5.30 a.m. in the morning. So how we intro every time, you know, good morning, it actually applies for uh, him. So it's really cool to finally, finally, yeah, we do. We have to start off. So, so we do have to start off with like, like we have like a big brain, uh, brain drain. And it turned out like a lot of people, once they, mm-hmm. uh, graduate high school, they have to, if they have the luxury or they find a grant or find a way to actually study abroad, a lot of people go and study abroad and they don't actually come back. So. I'm wondering, especially and yeah, you're much bigger as a country than, than we are. <laughs> we're not even, we're probably compared to India, we're not even considered a city. So, so what is it, what, <laughs> what is it there? Like how, how does a normal trajectory of someone who's from Bangalore, what, what is the kind of the business trajectory or the professional trajectory that you kind of go to from growing up to going into business? Sure. I think, well, that's a deep question. So let me, let me deconstruct that into two parts. One is that my personal journey. And secondly, what I have been seeing around me, my friends, some of my uh, close, you know, college mates and in general, you know, in the, in the society, what people have been doing for the last few years. So personally, of course, I'm electronics and communication engineer by uh, profession. And thereafter I did my MBA in international business. 
and uh, I just got into the management consulting bandwagon. So started with a bunch of stints out here in this part of the world back and thereafter moved to UK. Lived there for a couple of years, did some bunch of uh, consulting uh, engagements as well. And uh, then, yeah, like management consulting, it really pitches you to different geographies and locations. So was lucky enough to travel the world, had been to uh, Middle East, spent some time over there. Then again, changed some jobs, went to the US, then, you know, did some stints in the, you know, East Coast, came back to India, then just thought, okay, few years of consulting experience, corporate experience. Is there a way you can actually dabble your, uh, you know, hands in uh, the startup ecosystem as well? Because really it was rising out here. So yeah, that led me to go to Israel, lived there for a while. Then again, went to US to pitch some of the investors, came back, dabbled a little bit in the SaaS ecosystem and eventually just before the pandemic, I was um, in uh, Latin America as well, very close to you guys in uh, Mexico. I was teaching entrepreneurship and venture capital in a university college, Egadi Business School as a guest faculty. And thereafter, uh, in 2020 and 2021, yes, I was very big on podcasting. So that's my normal trajectory. But typically a lot of my friends and um, colleagues and uh, work friends of my age range usually go for a traditional, how do you say, a scientific degree. Usually either they choose engineering or medicine. That has been the normal, normal Very Asian choice for a lot of typical, typical, especially because um, A, there is a little bit of societal pressure, pressure around uh, them because their parents, their family members really um, enforce the fact that they have to be in the top notch universities to actually, you know, it's a, India is a very competitive market, right? So irrespective of which stream you choose, if you want to really excel, then you'll have to be very competitive early on from your school days itself. So that really translates into getting into engineering or medicine. And after that, after that undergraduation degree, a lot of people really understand what to do next. So that's like many of the folks go for higher education in many universities across the world. A majority of the segment from the engineering curriculum, they usually choose to go to US and to pursue their higher studies. And that's why you see a lot of people in the US ecosystem, you know, doing really good in the big tech space who are really coming from India. And uh, if they just stick on to that particular uh, space for like five, 10 years, then they really go to the upper echelons of those companies as well. So that's sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of CEOs from Fortune 500 companies are, are it's <laughs> a very interesting trend that's indeed going on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the recent one was Parag from, you know, Twitter has an oh, yeah, origin yeah. as well and yeah. uh, we have been to <laughs> yeah so we have been like tweeting all our what like five six years so so everyone is on twitter especially the people like podcasters we all are on twitter as well and that was a big news uh, for the indian diaspora how does well. that translate back to india though because chanuk mentioned brain drain because the people go out to further you know their interests especially in the tech space because from our perspective here, I don't know if that's the same impression in other places, but uh, a few years back, India was perceived as, you know, the, the outsourcing of cheap tech support and IT labor. Is that still kind of a, the, the stereotype or has the tech space in India itself developed to a more mature state, in your opinion? Right. I think it's been almost like 20 years that I've seen very closely just after my 10, 12th, I, I realized that brain drain was a very common phenomenon back in the day of like 2001 to 2005 or seven, maybe. Right. So that was like uh, the peak era where a lot of professionals from India were actually going just not engineering professionals or, you know, top notch uh, management graduates, but also people from the medicine professions as well. They were traveling to Australia, Canada, UK, or, or obviously the US, but for the last uh, 10 years, especially when the startup ecosystem has a little bit matured in India, what I've seen is that India is now becoming a hub for a lot of um, product companies as well. Some of the, I mean, I, I really am on long on this uh, space called a software as a service. So a lot of SaaS companies are also coming out from India and uh, we are currently in the golden era of this particular SaaS revolution that's currently taking off. But if I were to summarize for you, Diego, I strongly believe that for the last 11 to 12 years, there has been a less of brain drain. 
there has been a reverse brain drain to be honest a lot of people who were in other countries like us and other parts of the world they have actually come back to the hubs like bombay or delhi or bangalore and they've started something from these hubs as well along with their friends and, and families and to quickly touch on that point then someone already asked this what saas so saas is software as a service uh, as that's the meaning the terminology but could you break it down in how a layman should understand what saas is and why do you say it's in like the golden era right now that people should look more into saas sure i take a dig on my name every other time when i actually talk about it because you know the the saas itself is there in my name right so uh software as a service is not a, a new tech stack it's actually a business model so like any business model if you have a little bit of subscription layer on top of it if there is a lot of licensing around it where you can actually sell the software to anyone from any part of the world then that is the just that is the software as a service business model right you are actually lending out a particular piece of software for a particular dollar value let's say $5 $10 $1000 whatsoever for a definitive amount of time to all your customers so that's one of the easiest um, digital business model and uh, it's very well known these days because all the uh, all the softwares that we for basically are using, what right, we're using right now it is is a saas product absolutely absolutely because whosoever has bought it let's say john luke or diego then you'd have actually paid a particular dollar value per month for 12 months and and keep going on around it right so anything that you subscribe for a few months and then thereafter you so if i were to deconstruct what software as a service has been it is like changing it from the previous on premise software era to the current on cloud era okay i i'm i'm just we're just going to deep dive just because there are some interesting <laughs> questions coming coming in so uh, gregory comes with a very very peculiar question which is how do smart people deal with really smart people? A lot of people are number one in lower education, but when it comes to higher education, the entire class is filled with, with number one. <laughs> so, so I, I'm not sure, Gregory, if you want to frame the question further, I, I think it's a very valid point. I would love to have, uh, go first and then Diego and I can maybe touch upon it a little bit from our experience as well. Yeah, sure. My two cents would be the more higher you go up the value chain if we were to tell that as uh usually you will always find smart people right because they have been they have excelled in the field that they have chosen and they are finally going up the value chain because of their expertise knowledge and the experience that they have gathered over the, over few years now the way to deal with i'll quote something called as the riches are in the niches so if you are really trying to make your mark in that space then you you'll have to find your own niche so if you know exactly that this is what i will be doing for the next few years then you will just not go on the breadth side of it but you'll really go deep into a particular area or aspect now malcolm gladwell always talks about this uh, 10000 rule right so if you have actually devoted certain amount of time for a particular area or uh, you know subject then you already dev have developed that expertise and you can uh, direct or channelize that expertise to really excel in your particular field as well but having said that uh, you should always feel that you do not have to be very competitive with all the smart people uh, up uh, you know who are at the top of the chain right it's it's a very collaborative effort the more higher you go the more humble you become so once you are humble down what you can do is that you can actually collaborate with a lot of other smart people as well try to see where the best synergies lie and try to co-create something better for the world. So uh, that is one way of approaching when you are in that particular space. But having said that, everyone is a smart person. It's just that they are smart in their respective field. No, I, I loved how you mentioned, you know, you become humbler as you go higher up in that chain, because I, I, I agree with that sentiment. As you learn more about the particular niche or, you know, the, a particular subject, the more you realize how much you don't know, and that you actually need the different niches to complement your knowledge to actually co-create, as you said, something new. And even finding a niche is, can be particularly hard. And I would add to this, you don't have to stick to one niche. You don't have to stick to one particular subject. And I think Tim Ferriss broke it down very nice. 
become a specialized generalist by combining two or multiple niches into, you know, a, an overlapping field to create a, a uber niche that kind of bridges the gap between those two. And I think that's a way you could approach it, it as well. If you think about it, how you co-create or, you know, collaborate with the other smart people in the space you're in. And I, I know Gregory's background a bit. He's in the finance space, uh, trying to get into the uh, CFA program. And that, that, that's very, very funny. Funny. He, he told me about it. Uh, so <laughs> I think that's where the sentiment comes from. Yeah. So, so quickly, quickly putting into a little bit more frame, is there a, re is there a reality check for smart people? Do smart people start to become resentful or jealous of other smart people? And I think the traditional thought is that Gregory's from a space that is a dog eat dog world. And I'm laughing because outside right now, two dogs are fighting at the moment. <laughs> but, so, but when I look at it, like, I don't think it's also just the smarts. I think it's, it's fairly well self-reflective. Are you, and how much or how quickly are you aware that you're in a group where you're not the smartest person in that group? And in a group where there are actually other people that are, are more knowledgeable than you are. And how do you approach it? How, how do you go about it? Because I know quite some smart people that they, they can place themselves among others and that they become resentful indeed, or they try to be like, they really try to be a leader of the group. It, it doesn't come natural. Because there are other people that are like, yeah, but what you're saying and what you're doing, we've been there before. <laughs> and that, that's kind of the, I, I rarely have issues with people that are smarter than me because I often realize quickly that people are smarter than me. And I think for a lot of smart people, when they realize that others are smart as well, they try to learn from them. So that's why the answer is beautiful. Like, yeah. That's also said, like you, it, it, it's more of a collaborative effort. It's more than a collaborative effort because you know, you need each other. You know, you don't have all the expertise. So you reach out to others. The only moment that it becomes kind of a, an issue when there is somebody who might have a high IQ, but has a lesser EQ and it's just <laughs> trying to be the boss of everybody else or trying to do it their way without actually consulting the others. Because if you consult others first, like I have this idea, what do you think? And you're open-minded to have your idea changed. Mm -hmm. There's almost never like uh, a collusion of, 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 of thoughts. But once you have like somebody that's mm -hmm. like, my, brain, my way of thinking and my food, my thoughts are leading and they are better than others. That's basically when, when, mm -hmm. when the kind of the, the disconnect comes. And I think in, in the field of finance, there might be, especially traditional finance, there might be a lot of people that still think in a way like, I know it best, so you have to listen to me. Whereas I think also our generation is uh, kind of like, yeah, sure, but we don't, we really don't know everything at the moment. And there's abundance of information. Why do you want to claim information when there's abundance? So expect each other, accept each other's expertise. I think. I think that helps a lot. Yeah, I think John, look, you really touched upon two words that really stuck in me is one is that you said uh, about leading, which is like talking about a different, you know, ball game. It, leadership is a different game altogether and uh, not necessarily all smart people are good leaders. And in some cases, not uh, all good leaders are extremely smart as well. So, so it's, and the second part is that, do you actually have to lead if you were, if you are really top of, if you are really a smartest person as well, right? So first of all, now these are two different um, uh, angles. Like one, one is that leadership is just not about being smart. That's the quality aspect of it. You have a depth of uh, knowledge, you have the breadth of a knowledge and you are exploring and you know leadership is like being smart being knowledgeable plus having excellent communication skills as well the way you communicate with all stakeholders the way you communicate with people etc so that's the leadership angle but uh, smart people um, uh, if you were to um, reference a lot of them are introverts as well so um, uh, i was there in another part of our friend who runs a podcast by the name of digital uh, introverts godwin 
And uh, something that we learned is that the way the introvert or an extrovert approach to these areas, right, are very complex and very different as well, right? So leadership, I would not say has a lot of, if leadership is 100%, I would say being smart just gives 5% into that bigger pie, right? The rest 95%, there's a lot of things that are coming in, right? There, there's communication skills, there is, there is the way how you interact with a lot of people, the way you actually trust your instincts, et cetera, et cetera. So um, uh, you could be smart, but lead, leading is a different ball game altogether. I quickly want to jump into the leading part before we really dive into more the podcasting <laughs> space, because I, I want to ex- have a little bit of that, that bright mindset, because you might not know it, but there are some similar similarities in the way you spoke on uh, the developments of people from India going abroad, building up experience abroad and coming back. And we have kind of a very, uh, a lot of, about 50%, a little under 50% of Suriname has a very strong Indian heritage. So there are some connections to it as well. So what, what really strikes me as interesting is you mentioned that also do a little bit to the better infrastructure that there now is in India. It's becoming more attractive for people to come back, like the diaspora to come back. But how much is, is there still a mindset of Indian pride where you say like, we still want India as a country to have that place in the world where we can certainly be kind of proud of what we've achieved. How much does that play in your generation uh, at the moment? Hmm. That's a very interesting question because whenever any question gets asked to a typical Indian like us, we get confused because there are like 1.4 billion people. So, so you can't represent whatever you say for the majority of the population. But for, if you are in a particular city and you are in the tech space or in our, are in VC landscape as well. So that is a very, very tiny, you know, drop in the ocean, right? If you were to fragment that into three or four uh, SECs, which is like socioeconomic classes, the first SEC is where uh, top-notch 50 to 100 million people of the 1.4 billion people uh, reside in. They have access to the top-notch facilities across the country and across the world as well. They have uh, good educational credentials because they were lucky enough to go to some of the best schools and universities and they are very global in nature. They have been to different parts of the world. They have uh, working experience. They work. Oh no, did we lose? Yeah, that, I think we have electric break coming up in the podcast. Of course, it, yeah, in the live I, version, I, in the I, live version, we will, we will continue, but we will edit this up for the audio version. I think, I think the lights went out. Uh, yeah. let, let me check up on him while you. Yeah. So while we talk about it, we'll just go through a couple of comments because, uh, Devin and Gregory are sharing some knowledge and keep us uh, going. So what if, uh, Elon Musk says around yourself with people who are smarter, you know, it's an interesting, interesting thing because uh, you don't always want that level. So that's, that's the, that's the difficult part. You don't always want to be only with, because like Alexis was said, you have different kinds of smarts. You have, everybody is a smart person, everybody just in their own, in their own perspective field. So the day Diego and I were with a group of people. And one of my friends came a little bit late. He has a very distinctive quality. He has a quality that when he moves into a room or into a table, it becomes fun. It doesn't mean, doesn't matter what the setting is. It doesn't matter what uh, we're talking about, but if he enters the room or he joins the conversation, the conversation is fun. We have a lot of laughs and it's not just because he is that good in conversing. But it's more that he gets other people going and makes other people feel comfortable. So it, 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 it isn't always like, I understand that the, the post from Elon was very much from a business strategic perspective, but it's not always the case that you, you want that necessarily. You do want it because you want to grow as a company, but that necessarily makes it the environment you want to be in. So Diego, while we wait. Well, that we all agree disagree. Can you repeat the, the, what, what's already agreeing and disagreeing about? Okay. So I'm just going to share it here. The higher you climb up the ladder, the more you need to prioritize soft skills over hard skills. Example, managing people, empathy, delegation. <sighs> I find this a difficult one. 
Okay, I, I assume Gregory is asking this from a more traditional corporate frame. Because if you're talking about a ladder, we're talking about a bigger organization. That's where a lot of players and managing come into play. So in, in that case, I'd say, yes, the more people skills, communication skills you have, that comes more into play, becomes more prevalent as you go higher because you have more responsibilities. But if you're talking about the startup phase, as we mentioned before, you have smaller teams. This is where everybody actually needs to have these skills and contrib co-contribute to everything because everyone has more stake in what's the, what the outcome is. Everyone has more responsibility. So in that sense, you are actually on an equal ladder on a, on a flat, on a flat surface. And that's where you actually also need empathy, delegation, and actually trust in that others will actually execute in what they are best at. So in that aspect, I, I won't say the higher, the, not only the high, it doesn't necessarily count to just how higher you go that you need soft skills. So it, it depends on the context and environment. And this can go into, you know, the, the, the nurture. And I see Sasuke is back. Yeah, Sasuke is back. So before we bring Sasuke back, Gregory, I'm going to go a very Gary Fader shot on you. Clouds and dirt. Clouds and dirt. Like a lot of people focus on the soft skills, but then they really don't know anything about the hard skills anymore. And they completely get disconnected from their whole team. So it's clouds and dirt, baby. You have to be like in the clouds to understand the bigger picture. And you also have to go into the dirt to, to touch up your skills. Because if you lose your hard skills and you have a team of 20 people that actually you have to manage and they realize that you don't actually have those hard skills that you tried to judge them on. Oh, they're just going to have a field day with you. And you're, you, you won't even know they're, they're having a field day with you. So let's bring back, uh, <laughs> so when you can, you can tell us, I mean, we're, we're, we're open and authentic. So you, so you can just tell us what happened. Yeah, exactly. So what happened is that there was a little bit of blip and uh, whenever there is a, a blip for like five seconds, electricity just goes off. So it just went off and then it got connected. So, you know, usually the, the it's like six o'clock in the morning, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit of uh, electricity change as well. So sorry for that disconnection at my end, guys. But it's yeah. It's fine. It's fine. No worries. So, we so several times. yeah, we, you, I mean. We, we had several experiences. We have, <laughs> uh, I think one of the first episodes, my internet was like so terrible that I had to hotspot to my phone and I kept getting out of the thing. So what we're going to do for the live session, we're just going to continue for the audio sure. version of the podcast. We're going to do some cuts, but maybe sure. a little bit go back on the question, because what I loved is how you kind of uh, structured everything and you were kind of telling us about the three different layers. So if you sure. can quickly go a little bit back to those three different layers and also connecting that to like the, the, the naturalist side of, of, of Egypt pride, especially from sure. your, your generation. Sure. So I was talking about socioeconomic classes of like the first 50 or hundred million people. Then there is a huge, huge middle class. The way we structure that middle class is that maybe around like 600 or 700 million people are in that middle class zone, which is like taking away another, leaving another 600 uh, million people as well. And the 600 people are in the lower middle class or in, in the lower, the lowest of the spectrum, right? So whenever you folks are talking to educated people, people who have uh, well-traveled, have been to different universities across the globe, or you see them in many of the newspapers or you hear about them and all the all the global platforms possibly are you know touching the 50 to 100 million people right so of course there are brilliant folks in the rest of the spectrum as well but the majority of the people who are taking the pr coverage is in that uh, top layer now the the worldview of the of those people are they have a global a global exposure they are uh, much more comfortable working with people from all all cultures they have better experiences in their life due to their privilege or due to their uh, educational backgrounds as well so their their worldview is very different it, it is nice the world is uh, rosy you know it's, it's a rosy picture for them you know they have access to the best of the things in different parts of the world they have friends all across the world so that's a different um, uh, spectrum the middle class people are are the folks where they first gen they are the first generation of folks 
who have actually uh, taken from the you know from their parents the parents were not very well off but because of their hard working skills they've really jumped the chasm or gone beyond the barrier of being in their uh, previous generation of you know how do you say to put in humbler tone not from very uh, rich backgrounds right now that majority of the middle class that you actually talk about that's also famously called as the indian middle class and that they have people who have really struggled very hard for a good amount of time maybe 5 years 10 years 15 20 years as well these are the people who are really supporting all all the social construct within india right and there is a majority of the segment maybe i may be uh, butchering the numbers but maybe 400 million or 500 million who are in the lowest spectrum they do not have access to the best of the facilities whether it is access to educational um, institutions in india or abroad or access to a lot of other other societal features as well now the reason i deconstructed that into three layers is because whenever you ask about india it is not a singular answer it is uh, it is dependent on on which spectrum of people you are referring to or you are asking about as well because each each one's world view is very complex and very different right but if you were to generalize some of the you know some of the elements for all these three sec uh, sectors or spectrums would be one of them is that for the last 20 years india has uh, developed and has become one of the amazing you know it's it's still ranging in the top 10 economies of the world so if you were to think that globally we are doing really good maybe it's like 2.7 trillion dollar of uh, gdp going towards more maybe you know 5 trillion dollar of gdp in the next 2 to 3 years so so the global components are looking good but that accounts um for almost like 1.4 billion people right so that's why the numbers are really going big but if you individually cater to these segments the the middle class people as well as the upper middle class or the rich uh, segment or the you know at the top of the band folks have the best of the facilities they are much more gung ho about the indian wave as well the way our governments have been performing uh, the way uh, you know the global arena has respected the indian talent from various various educational backgrounds the way um, the indian talent has been performing in different parts of the world and the way they have been performing within that country as well has been absolutely fabulous right so there's a winning story in place if you were to take note of the lowest spectrum of let's say 400 500 people there's a lot of um, uh, development that could be done so 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 a lot of institutions whether it is government or uh, a bunch of private institutions are really looking to cater to this 500 uh, people as uh, 500 million people as well so there is a um, inside joke in the startup ecosystem where they have actually layered into two segments one is that india 1 and india 2 so india 1 has this access to all the best of the things they have a different world view altogether and india 2 which is which is uh, still on the verge of taking that leap and coming to to the area of india 1 as well so um, all in all um, the india i mean i'm i'm not i'm very global in my uh, mindset so i'm i'm not like a lot of people will say they have a national pride but uh, national pride is is a contested uh, topic because just because you are born within the peripheries of a country does not uh, make you uh, a person who who has to be obliged to do a set of things right you can have still have your independent opinion about a bunch of things irrespective of which nationality you belong to or which geographical uh, boundaries you are currently residing in so so definitely because the global arena has been respecting the work of a lot of indians and indian institutions that's that's really you know bringing in a little bit of pride among india uh, indians but definitely i'm not pretty sure what the other 400 or 450 million indians have the contextual knowledge about the perception of india in the outer world as well Yeah, no, I agree. Gregory says it's the same thing. Wait, where is it? Yeah, here, here it is. Yeah, you're really good into breaking down questions. So, with that breakdown in mind, actually, I I wanna tie this into scaling and the SaaS world. And we we look at India, 1.4 billion, and then if you look at Suriname, not even half a, yeah, not even a million. So we're, we're <laughs> talking hundreds to hundred times the size in scale. and you you 
clearly said that, you know, you, you can segment in India in, as one whole because the G GDP doesn't account for everything as a whole. So if you're looking at that at scale, and if you draw a parallel to software uh, startup ecosystem, do you need to internationalize your product or your software as a service to be able to have a successful startup business in your experience? Mm. Oh, I love that topic. Thanks for asking that, Diego. That's my sweet spot as well, because I am a very strong proponent of internationalizing a lot of uh, the software products very early on in the journeys of the you know software products as well. So um, SaaS is a global play, irrespective of which uh, company you are operating from, you will have to sell into markets, whether it is in LATAM, whether it is in the US or Europe or APAC, etc. Right. So if you have already ingrained the components of internationalization, then definitely you will have an upper edge at a later point in time. So um, now luckily I was reading a particular book, which is just there by my bookshelf. It's called Elad Gill's High Growth Handbook. And what he talks about is that whenever you are building software products, you will have to um, understand what your product is, what kind of problems your product is solving. And uh, if these problems are really in different geographies or are in uh, global markets, then you better have to have that foundational block set up in the early stages itself. Now, when you talk about global markets, definitely a language plays a role. There are a lot of other culture, cultural nuances that comes into play. Let's say, you know, today if I'm a company based out of uh, Singapore or Bangalore and I'm trying to uh, sell it into Suriname, maybe I happen to go to Paramaribo and try to meet some uh, uh, of your uh, business partners. And how do I approach that particular problem statement? Because I don't speak Dutch. I don't know how to engage with a lot of this hardly there's a high possibility that a lot of people from, let's say, from this part of the world haven't even met a lot of Surinamese people. So how do they sell into those kind of markets, right? So one is that you'll have to have a very strong understanding about the new market or the, about the international market that you're trying to um, sell into. That's one. Secondly, you'll have to have a very strong understanding about the cultural elements of a particular country whether it has uh, food cues, whether it has language cues, whether it has a lot of um, other traditional um, you know, practices, etc. And thereafter, you'll have to um, uh, make the messaging or the communication strategy accordingly for the GTM, which is the go-to-market. And the more understanding you are about a particular user's problem in a particular segment or a particular market, the better you can actually modulate the product for their conditioning because people eventually buy, right? Whether it is a B2C or a B2B, irrespective of which country you are trying to target, you, you, are, you are selling into people. And as long as you solve people's problem, your product gets solved, got, get, you know, sold out or gets perceived well within that particular market. And eventually you get the revenues into your company. So SaaS is the, one of the amazing, you know, uh, business model for software products because you can be having your development team or implementation te team in your particular country. And eventually you can sell it to any of the countries in the world. There's a high possibility that if you are having your implementation team in Suriname, you can still send it, you know, sell it to, let's say, you know, Eastern Europe, you can still sell it to, you know, Germany, you can still sell it to Australia, etc. So now internationalization is definitely the way to go because A, it's, it's a, it's a very flat world we are in, right? I mean, irrespective of uh, which country we all are living in, we are all using some of the base. We are all using the internet, which is truly global in nature, right? It started off with 90. Luckily, luckily. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's a new wave coming in as yeah. well of, uh, but, but it's global in nature and we are using some of the same, you know, we are using the same search engines, whether it is google.com, et cetera. We are trying to have access, especially to the same OTT platforms, whether it is Amazon, Netflix, et cetera. So there, there's a lot of standardization or, you know, people are coming, getting into the same realm of things. I, I want to yeah. go into that a bit, sorry to interrupt, because there, as you say, there's becoming standardization. More people are adopting some solutions everywhere, independent of geography, have the say, has the same 
subset of problems, common problems, other places, more niche problems, of course, depending on geographic, political, business, economic situations. But don't you think at, at a point there's going to be a saturation of SaaS solutions of copy-paste products of each other. It's, it's already there, but the market solves itself, I think. Sorry for, yeah. for just jumping in. How does that solve itself is my question then. Because yeah, you, you, you mentioned you have to go inter, you have to internationalize and basically then you have to localize again. So you go local, sure. international, localize to solve this uh, specific problem there. But how does that work itself out from your experience? So. Globalization is a new terminology. I mean, it has been there for at least a decade where every global company that has a global mindset wants to localize it in a specific country, right? But your question was that how do you, uh, if everyone copy paste, right, uh, then how do you go further? So I strongly believe that uh, a particular, you know, set of people, if they happen to reside in a particular, you know, geographical location or in a country, they have uh, strong skill sets, right? So if you go to the Wall Street area, like one of the gentlemen from your show was talking about in the finance realm, some of the best bankers in the world are in the Wall Street, are in the US, right? So so the financial system is somehow being, being concentrated, if we were to say, in the US. Similarly, software uh, has been a good, good uh, powerhouse for India for almost like three decades. It started from early 1980s and thereafter there was a lot of outsourcing work that happened to come to India and eventually now Indian companies are coming towards the productization or sassification of, of software products, right? So there will be world-class software products that will be built out from this part of the world, which will be catering to the global ecosystem. And to answer your question, Diego, is there a possibility of replication of these software products in ge different geographies as well? So if something some, somewhere gets started in, let's say, Singapore, Thailand, India, is there a possibility it can be replicated in Ukraine or let's say Romania or uh, in Germany and then thereafter somewhere in Latin America as well? My, my thought process is that it can be replicated definitely and it should be replicated as well. As long as you are, uh, you know, delivering the best uh, services or the product to your consumers or customers. And if you can make any product faster, um, cheaper, and much more relevant to your consumers, then the best it is. But, but as we will touch upon a Silicon Valley mindset where, where some of the fundamentals of software development are really at 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 the top of the pyramid right i mean they know the skills by which they can really globalize products which have strong modes that cannot be replicated even if you want to in your respective geographies right i mean for every uber there has been a taxi service in every other country in india included as well we have ola but but can you actually level up to the systemic thinking of the folks out there in Uber who are trying to globalize their product in different markets. It's, it's a complex game. So countries can try. Yeah. So, so I, I want to jump into that because I was going to ask a question of language because of course you also worked in Mexico with, uh, with companies and entrepreneurs there. But, but, but you jumped into something interesting because what of course happens, like it's, it's a global game or multinational clubs kind of takes over the whole field. Uh, perfect, perfect example actually is something like Netflix or Spotify, mm -hmm. like, like the, the, there are massive advantages. Like mm -hmm. I think the, when it comes to series, Spain was never known for movies, but, but thanks to Netflix, Spain is becoming like this this major player when it comes to, to, to series, like, like suspense series, especially with Casa de Papel and those kind of series. Yeah. So that's a very interesting, positive globalization aspect, but that you get something like Spotify and to give a little bit of context, Spotify was not available in, in, in China for very, very long time. So like mm. until 2019, like it's only March this year yeah, that it, yeah, so it, it, it was never available. Spotify wasn't available in China. So there was actually a local kind of Spotify like app that was built for local, for the local community in the Caribbean. And like the, the reason Spotify wasn't in Suriname was Spotify looked at India and then looked at the Caribbean 
and like all these countries combined added up to 50 million. And they were like, yeah, we don't really care about that target, <laughs> target audience. Until globalization hit the hard and COVID hit the hard, and they were like, okay, maybe we, now we should expand. So they kind of killed off all the competition, which wasn't that much, but now Spotify is available in Suriname and everybody can play with it. Kind of all these initiatives to kind of localize our local, our local music or focus on regional strengthening the region, it kind of dissolved immediately. Also because it wasn't strong enough. But then I want to ask the question, like you already mentioned, Ola, and there are probably a lot of other local apps in India, which even though the, the multinationals can use all their resources mm -hmm. to target you and put all kinds of psychological pressure on you to keep using your product, <laughs> locals stay away from it and use a different software just because that software is built more for them and they relate more to that software. How, how often do you come across these kind of solutions? And could you give us an example where like a local company or a local software just completely beat out like the multinationals and the bigger, the bigger software companies? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So John, look, what I have realized is that somehow a lot of value-based products, especially the consumer products, they have amazing executional abilities, right? I mean, even if you talk about any of the great enterprises currently, right? The FANGs, they are all based out of the US and they have some of the amazing teams. Now their core teams may be based out of the US, but a lot of their uh, work happens from different parts of the world, including some of the work that happens in Bangalore or in India per se, right? Now the Silicon Valley mindset is very, very unique from day zero. They have a globalization, you know, roadmap in play, right? They make products for the world. Now this mindset is very difficult to replicate. If you do not have that framework already in place in the hub that we, you are operating in, right? So it takes uh, a lot of people, few years to actually understand this basic concept that because, because in Silicon Valley, everyone thinks big. So any product that you develop, you actually are aiming to, you know, target the entire world with that particular product, right? If I were to give a few of the examples from my ecosystem, especially the startup ecosystem started evolving for the last 11, 12 years, it started with a company called Flipkart, which was, you know, competing with Amazon for a good amount of years, eventually got acquired by Walmart. Ola, like we uh, referenced earlier, is competing heavily with uh, Uber. There's a lot of, you know, other automobile uh, tech startups that are competing from the, from the global peers as well. And especially in software, right? I mean, Salesforce has been the top notch SaaS product in the world, right? Everyone knows about it, but uh, we just had an IPO from a company called as Freshworks, which is maybe like seven, 10 years old. And they are also competing head, head on with uh, Salesforce, right? I mean, there is HubSpot in the CRM space, but they're still competing. Now, the good part of this is that because they are very confident, confident of their, of their uh, internal teams, they are very confident about the expertise that they bring in. And they're uh, very, very comfortable with, with converging with these global lanes or global narratives as well, right? Any product that is coming up from this part of the world has a very strong sense of understanding the local markets as well. So let's say tomorrow, if Ola goes to Suriname, You'd be amazed the way they would engage with the local partners and understand the local ecosystem well before entering into that market as well. So a lot of Indian companies are there that could be given as examples, but I would actually touch upon an area that you need, maybe I'll go deep into the area as to why this is actually happening, right? You can start your con con company or an enterprise or an entity from whichever country you are in. Doesn't matter whether it is Latin America, doesn't matter in this new era of decentralization, uh, where everything is happening in the decentralized remote world. You do not have to be uh, physically located in a particular HQ, in a particular location. What you can actually bring in is, uh, is the ethos of the company that really you know, sets the bedrock for the global um, expansion. Once you have understood how do you actually build a 
international company from ground zero, then you, you'll be amazed that the fundamental blocks are way different, right? A, you'll have to think very big. B, capital is not more anymore a constraint if you have the right skill set, expertise, domain knowledge. You can be based out of, let's say, in Argentina, or you can be based out of, let's say, in Australia, but you can still have access to capital in any part of the world. In 2021 and beyond, physical boundaries are not a restriction anymore. So many of the SaaS companies that I've been engaging with or talking to or speaking with, I've realized that they have a very strong global play at hand in the very first six months, 12 months. Eventually, a lot of funding definitely comes from US, but it will evolve or, you know, skyrocket into a different trajectory in the next two to five years. I'm quickly looking at the time and there's a lot to unpack there. You mentioned funding from the US, decentralization, um, global mindset, and I want to cover them all, but we, we, we don't have the time. So. We're not even going to talk about podcasting. We're going to do a separate episode in 2022 <laughs> to talk about podcasting. Let's focus on this. No, no, but, I, but John, look, uh, you spoke about Spotify, right? So that's a good uh, segue into uh, podcasting. But I, I feel like Diego still has, has at least 10 minutes of questions. We still want to do an overrated, underrated yeah. with you. So I, I suggest we yeah. transition it into an over-under format to cover some of these things that Sas was mentioned in his last, yeah, in his last answer there. And so it was Sas, what we kind of, every show, uh, every episode, we ended off with an overrated, underrated. We bring up a subject topic can be relevant, random, and then you give us your hot take. If you think it's overrated, underrated, of course you can say it's also properly rated. And mm -hmm. you can also elaborate a bit if it's kind of controversial. So the, the first thing I want to know from you based on experience, underrated, overrated, venture capital, is it underrated or overrated? I may not be the right person to answer on that, but, um, personal opinion, I think, yeah, personal opinion, I think overrated maybe. And the reason for that is that it's a, a lot of PR engine that really shapes the narrative these days. So there's a lot of dollar news or money news that you keep on hearing from all, all digital uh, channels, but uh, it's a simple concept, I think. So it's, it's definitely um, uh, overrated. I mean, the good entrepreneurs definitely know the game of VC fundraising. So that, that's not a challenge for them. And the best of the VCs are too humble to even comment on a bunch of things, right? I mean, they're too busy in the scheme of worlds. So. It's, it's just the media that is, uh, you know, hyping or overrating it is my personal opinion. Interesting. I'm going to try to take it from a more social media approach. So Twitter spaces, underrated or overrated? Twitter spaces. Yeah, I've used it for a couple of times, but audio, audio, uh, social audio, right? Social audio has, is, is a bigger phenomenon and uh, Twitter spaces is just plugging into one part of it. There are huge other players in the, in the competitive space, including Clubhouse, Spotify, Green Room, Facebook, etc. I think it is underrated because the potential that I see for Twitter spaces is real, really humongous, especially I have no idea what their product roadmap is for the next two to three years, but definitely Twitter for their last 12 years of operations that I've been observing, they're sitting in a, sitting on a gold mine of data. They're just sitting on a gold mine of data and uh, the kind of people that are available on Twitter is uh, just, I mean, just amazing. So what they can actually make uh, Twitter spaces in the next six to 12 months is, is really huge. So uh, we are just touching the surface of it. It feels so. And Twitter is definitely giving a big competition to a lot of its peers in the coming months is what I feel so. So definitely underrated at this point in time. Interesting. All right. Next one for me, from a, from a business perspective, Singapore, is it underrated or overrated? Hmm. No, I, I don't think Singapore is underrated or overrated. It is rightly rated and it's the narrative of Singapore is, is at the, at the right stage is what I feel. So maybe 10 years back, it could be a hype or maybe overrated, but right now it is rightly, it, it's in the same plane. Okay, I'm going to throw a little bit of a weird one, but 
content content ownership that you own the content <laughs> instead of the content. you are asking that to a creator right we are all creators uh, podcasters are creators so i think content ownership that's a very deep and complex topic john you know like you know the definition I'll of tell me, yeah i'll i'll tell a little bit give a little bit of it maybe a little bit of an introduction to that question like i'm not a tech person so when i started off with podcasting i used anchor mhm and there are a lot of discussions now on the the pros and the cons of anchor one of the major major pros of anchor at the time for me was it's automatically connected to spotify so if i upload yeah. to anchor i automatically have it on spotify which yeah. i didn't have at, at that time again spotify wasn't available in now so creators what if spotify for creators wasn't either so mm -hmm. from that perspective it was just on a click of a button and that but then on the other side when you want to switch like it's it's there you know it's it's I wouldn't say it's fully owned by them, but still, they you kind of sign off that they are, they can do stuff with it. Same goes for Facebook. So when it comes to content ownership, like most of us are like just we want to put out content, we don't really think of how important it is that we sign off on Facebook using a, a picture that we uploaded as part of their marketing or advertising strategy. Mm -hmm. So it comes to a point like how important is it to own your own data, own your own podcast, that somebody else doesn't profit from it without you kind of knowing about it. Got it, got it. So if you, so I understand your question. So the answer would be um, overrated, but because there's a lot of depth into it, I'm I'm a mentor with the Anchor, Spotify Anchors Podcast Lab out here in India, which means that we have uh, taken 200 early stage podcasters and you are coaching them to, you know, create the season one. So I know for sure that Anchor, uh, in their bylaws, they it's a good platform to uh, start off with. You can you know post your particular um, podcast, and they've categorically said that the content is owned by the you know creator himself or herself, right? So uh, they would not the content ownership, but definitely you are using their platform to launch into Spotify and a bunch of other it, other distribution uh, platforms as well. So the content is still yours. What it will happen after five years, I may not be the right person to comment on it. But as we speak in 2021, definitely, if you are using Anchor, the, the content is definitely yours. But on touching on the broader, you know, segment of platforms that are using your content and you are voluntarily putting your content for the distribution, for for your access to multiple users, etc. You are anyways giving a little bit of your independence to these platforms, right? Because if 100% if, if of independence is the pie, then definitely by just using a particular platform like Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, uh, you know, Anchor, Spotify, what, whatsoever, even if they don't say, say it in their, you know, user, long agreements you still are giving a little bit of um, of your independence uh, to them because um, uh, your content is on their platform so you have no idea what uh, may be you know churning in the back of the uh, boardroom as well I mean, the latest fiasco of Facebook, right, was a big eye opener. A lot of ocean analysis that was done on personality types of people was done uh, without the consent of a lot of the content creators as well. So that, that's a so that's a platform game. Any platform that has has your data definitely has the capability to mine, you know, slice and dice the data and do a bunch of things. And eventually they can thrust a bunch of bylaws on you at a later point in time when their business model is at risk. So at this point in time, I think uh, any content creator uh, should be aware that if you are putting your content in any of the platforms in the digital uh, ecosystem, you are anyways giving away a little bit of your independence. So the, so you have the right to privacy. You can still post your content via postal mails to your friends. But um, if you do not do so, then definitely um, you are giving away a little, of, little bit of your independence every time you are accessing a new platform. So was it overrated? Am I right? Yeah. It's overrated from, from, from my perspective, because if you are an intelligent content creator, you are already aware of these. Yeah. You can from navigate day one. this space. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. On the topic of ownership and decentralization, when we were at the fellowship in February, March, 
NFTs were all the hype. And yes. kind of, you know, the market cycle has been gone up and down. And at this point in time, are NFTs, in your opinion, overrated or underrated? Underrated, definitely. Why? Because the yeah. use cases that, yeah, the use cases that are propping up uh, for NFT, NFTs, especially for the passion economy, the creator economy is just humongous. I mean, uh, a lot of people, especially people from our, our world of Web2, have no idea what these things can become in the next two to five years. I mean, you reference to Gary Vaynerchuk as well, right? So uh, if you just look into some of the thought, you know, some of the messages sent by a bunch of people in their WeFriends uh, we uh, server, you will realize that the kind of creators, the kind of worlds these creators are creating is just unimaginable. So, so it's, it's no, it's not a surprise that uh, a company like Facebook is changing to uh, changing its entire name into Meta in 2021. There's a bunch of other storylines to that as well, but definitely the metaverse, the NFTs are definitely going big. So at this point in time, December, 2021 underrated. Okay. Because then I'm very strictly jump back to what to but even older, like marketing 1.0. So why is underrated is. Advertising as a wide method of monetization. Is that overrated or underrated? So that you monetize by having companies advertise. Hmm. That's a tricky question, actually, because, because if I, as, as per my understanding, I understand both sides of the world. So, so having played the enterprise game, I know if you are a company and if you are representing a particular company, then you understand the mechanics of advertisement revenue flow as well. But if you are on the other side, when you are a creator, then you, then you understand what's happening at the top of the line as well. Right? So, so a good question would be, is it underrated or overrated from which side you are looking into, right? From the creator side, it is overrated from the, from the enterprise or company side, it is um, underrated. Interesting. Interesting. So a little bit on why it's underrated from the companies or enterprise side. Yeah, because, because companies see advertisement is, is a part of marketing, right? So every company has a marketing budget, roughly two to 5%. So depending on the kind of scale of the company as well. So a marketing company understands, sorry, the marketing department of the company understands that there is a certain budget for advert ads uh, spends as well, right? Eventually these ad spends get deployed via various channels and eventually it lands in some, in one of the kitties of one of the creator, which is there in some part of the world, right? So from their point of view, it is underrated because they see the value, the entire, you know, ad spend gives to their company. Like I mentioned, right? The marketing budget itself is like two to 5%. Ad budget is almost a minuscule part of that uh, particular budget. As compared to the gross revenue or net revenue of the company. So for, from their part of the world, I mean, if you are a CEO of a company, you would give more value to the, to the sales department. You will give more value to the implementation teams, to the core of the company as opposed to the marketing company, which may be like, let's say five to 7%. And within the marketing company, there is a smaller one of, let's say, you know, two to 5%, which is ad, ad company. So it's very underrated. And, and it's, it's also whom you are asking this question to. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a great question. I'm just thinking that if, if you are a person who understands the value economics of ad spends, ad revenues and ad ROIs, to your business entity, then, then you understand the entire, entire, you know, uh, how do you say the cost benefit analysis that gets done and there's a modeling that gets done on the CBI as well. So, so for you, it is, it is a no brainer, but for an outside person, for a lay person who does not understand this value chain, who does not understand the CBIs, you get confused and then you have a perception or an opinion about Maybe it's an underrated or an overrated, but if you are a very um, analytical person, you understand the value chain, then you say it's perfectly rated. Speaking of analytical, very analytical analysis you just did there. 
I love it. But I also love the fact, like, the first answer was for a creator over here. I, I love, like, we don't have to get into the, that uh, this time, yeah. well, but I love no, it. the separate between indeed the, the two perspectives, the perspective from a creator and the perspective from so the company as well. Oh, that, that, that was a, a amazing breakdown of over underrated. Um, but I think it's time to close it off before we go another two, three hours. So Saswat, to close it off, how are you closing off 2021 and where can people find you, connect with you, find your content, but you can share that all now. Sure. Thanks for giving me this opportunity, Diego and John Luke as well. Absolutely love this conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm available on Twitter at twitter.com slash partner. And I'm closing out 2021 by an amazing uh, course on podcasting, uh, which is called as Audio Lab. I co-created with a friend of mine, Ariel Nissenblatt, and we went through the Maven experience to create it on Maven. So it's just available on maven.com slash Republic of SaaS slash Audio Lab. So it's a podcasting curriculum that we have created for upcoming podcasters or best of the podcasters in the world to become thought leaders. So we are happy to have any of the listeners or any of the folks uh, who'd love to join us in this amazing journey. So that's how we are closing out. Was that just another blip? Yes, yes, there was a blip. <laughs> <laughs> the light also said, yeah, yeah, I agree to that. Awesome. Awesome. So with Diego, of course, we will put in the, the links, all the links of Saswat just mentioned uh, into the description of uh, the video, but also the audio version. Diego, some final closing remarks? Yeah, the closing remarks. We are two weeks away from closing off the year. It has been amazing. Uh, the conversation with you, Saswat, has been very, very pleasant. The, the way you broke down the questions and answered, it was very, like, uh, a breath of fresh air, like breaking down these complex situations that sometimes we try to, you know, emulate and you did really well. And I think a lot of the listeners, especially Gregory, he had the most questions. I, I think, uh, it, it got through. Yeah. And yeah, there's so much more to talk about. We didn't even touch the future of audio and what the <laughs> potential is there. So we would love to have you on again somewhere next year in the middle, if you are available, of course. But yeah, to the listeners who tuned in live, thank you for tuning in live. Thanks for listening. And if you miss this, you can always rewatch it or wait for the, you know, the edited, the cut down version of this that will be released on the website at convos.com. With that being said, Shanluk, roll us out. Sasa, thank you so much for joining in. Diego, as always, it's been a pleasure. And everybody watching live in the comments, thank you for joining in again. This was Social Confluence. See you back next week. Same place, same time. Bye-bye.